0: there we're back from our break this is Jamie and I'm with Greg and you're with Studio 7500 and our guest just arrived we have with us today Jennifer Peterson who is the chair of our department of communications here at Woodbury and she's also an associate professor so welcome Jennifer hi thanks for having me
1: of course thanks for being here
0: we probably should just start out by saying this whole radio station or podcast is a, a brainchild of Jennifer. So, yeah. This You're is...
1: like our boss.
0: <laughs> yeah. She's our boss. In absentia, right? <laughs> yeah. So actually, just to talk
2: about that a little bit, um, when I was in college, I did radio at CalX Radio, Berkeley. And I loved doing college radio, although I didn't do it for very long. And when I got here to Woodbury, I thought, hey, this would be a really cool initiative for the school. Right. And now that it's a lot easier to do radio because it's quote unquote radio, it's actually all online and we don't have to get bandwidth and we don't have to follow FCC rules, um, I thought I would put together a proposal. So I did. And I sort of um, saw it through various committees and got approval and a tiny shoestring budget and got this wonderful closet
0: sized space that we're in. And then uh, here we are. So this is Great. Yes, I remember we discussed our show, Studio 7500, what, about six months ago? Maybe say, more. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just love the idea. And I was telling you earlier today that this is one of the favorite parts of my job is doing this show. It is so much fun to actually meet the meet what, meet what the people who make Woodbury what it mm-hmm. is and so unique and right. special. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, I just think it was a great idea. And how many shows do we have now? Well, I believe it's... 14 or 15 shows, and I just had a new proposal come in the other day,
2: so we're always adding shows, and it's really exciting. I'm so thrilled to see the response, and um, it's been great. Awesome. So, Jennifer, just tell us about yourself. Yeah. Your background. So, um... I have a Ph.D. in um, film and media studies, although I was in an English department at the University of Chicago when I did that. Um, And then before that, I did my undergrad at UC Berkeley, and I was an English major there. So I'm sort of like a a book nerd and a movie nerd, (laughs) basically.
1: Where did you grow up?
2: In Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah, um, but I am a first-generation college student. My parents didn't go to college; uh, they're smart people, but didn't have the opportunity to go to college. So I was. And super... you
1: really went to college. You yeah. made up for it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was always like the nerdy one, reading books, and you know, doing well in school. So.
1: So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in your field.
2: Yeah, I guess I'd say I sort of fell into it naturally. Like in undergrad, I just liked literature. So I thought, hey, I'll study literature. Mm -hmm. And then in grad school, I really clicked with one professor at the University of Chicago. Her name was Miriam Hansen. And uh, Miriam taught the first film class I ever took because I could never get into them at Berkeley. They were always impacted and full. And I would like get on the lottery and I wouldn't get in. So in grad school, I finally got in because it was a smaller school, and I really clicked with Professor Hansen. And I did really well in her class, and I won an award for, like, best master's thesis in the department. And so it was kind of like from there, I just thought, hey, this is fun. I'll keep doing it. Um, But I did not set out to be a professor. A lot of people who are professors wanted to do that from day one. A lot of professors have academic parents, but I don't have either of those. I just kind of love what I do. And then now that I've been teaching for a long time, I love students. So as you say, like, it's so great to interact with students and see what makes them tick and just get to know them. It's a total joy.
1: Now, Jamie also went to Berkeley. By oh the way. No way,
0: yeah, um, yes. I, when I was re- reading back on your background, I noticed yeah. that we were both um, at Cal at similar yeah. times. So, yes, right definitely a great time. Yeah. I studied communications. Oh, cool. So, um, I stayed in that field clearly, yeah. and it's been it's been quite it's been wonderful. Yeah. I, I love it. But um, back then, did you know as an English major, mm-hmm. what did you think you wanted to do?
2: I wasn't really sure, actually, and they didn't give us any training and career preparedness. I'm sure you had the same experience. I mean, this was a while back. Mm -hmm. So um, I graduated and got a job in a bookstore, and I realized that I didn't really want to do that. I thought for a while I wanted to be a creative writer because I was writing short stories and Mm -hmm. poetry and wanted to express myself. So I applied to some creative writing programs and didn't get in, and then I got in at University of Chicago um, and they had this sort of creative writing program, but it, it I ended up not doing that. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. So you just kept going to school.
0: Yeah, which is fine until yeah. something in your path led to this. So yeah, yeah.
2: Is... I feel really fortunate to be yeah. able to teach uh, film and media. And it's, you know, studying stuff that I love, talking about stuff that I love, sharing mm-hmm. it with students. And also, like, kind of I feed on their energy. You know, I always ask them what they're into right. as well. Right, right. Um, and it's, it's super fun. I love the young energy of, of the university.
0: Now, how long have you been the communications, uh, uh excuse me, chair? Sure. Yeah. 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 So I came here
2: in fall of 2015. So this
0: is my fourth
2: year here. So three and a half years now. Um, and before that, so my job before this was at the university of Colorado Boulder. So I taught there for 10 years, technically for 11 years, but mm-hmm. the 11th year I was on leave. Um, And so that was my first tenure-track job, and I moved there and got tenure and stuff. But it just— It didn't work out for my family, and so, you know, my husband and I relocated back here, and we have some kids, and I was commuting between L.A. and Colorado for a few years every week by plane. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, which was not good, (laughs) although surprisingly, more academics than you might think have to do this because there's so few jobs. Sure. Mm. So, um, finally, I was like, this is not sustainable for my health and life.
1: Now, um... It's interesting. We ask students and alumni this mm-hmm. all the time. We say, and and it, this is pertinent to you now, mm-hmm. did you know about Woodbury when you were at... Boulder?
2: I did not, although I have to say, so I lived, after I graduated from Chicago, I moved back to California, being from California, Um, and then I lived in LA for a while, and I did hear about Woodbury, because I have friends who are architects, and my husband now is Mm -hmm. an architect, Uh, so I had a friend who was teaching here, like, back around 2005 or so, so I had heard of it. And then uh, when we moved back here during my commuting years, I actually was neighbors with Ingela Walhus Ritter. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, okay. and, uh, she, That's our dean
1: of architecture, by the way.
2: Yeah. And she's fabulous. And she became a good friend, her and her family. So I did know about Woodbury, but I didn't know about the school of MCD so when I heard about the opportunity to apply for a job here I was super excited and then um, long story short after a while I ended up getting the job and I was thrilled to be able to stop commuting and and to contribute here and be a chair of a program because I was not a chair at Boulder I was just a regular old professor.
1: so. (laughs) So, So another thing we like to ask too is you know we did this last week we had a grad student on or a graduate who was in our grad program who had gone to the University of Arizona. So, mm-hmm. you know, having taught at at, at um, Boulder, Boulder. Mm-hmm. I was going to say they call it CU, right? They do. They yeah. call
2: it CU, which is confusing. Back in from, our day, it was Boulder. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and and coming from UC, right? You know, I think CU that's why they call confusing. it. that. Yeah. But uh, anyway,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the Buffaloes, right? Yes, yeah. The I buffs. used to live in Colorado. Oh too. yeah. So um, anyway, um, you know, bigger state school. Mm-hmm. Versus the experience here, smaller, mm-hmm. you know, some people say boutique, mm-hmm. um, but you know, a smaller private institution. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, compare and contrast? Yeah. And it doesn't all have to be, we're very authentic here. Yeah. Yeah. Positives, negatives. Yeah. It's interesting to hear.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. It's very, very different. Um, I really love the small class sizes here. So for me as a teacher, the biggest upside is the small classes. And I get to know my students well. And, you know, that's usually really good because <laughs> right. I, I tend to really like my students quite a bit. Um, and it's nice to learn all their names, you know. Right. At Boulder, I had a class that I always taught, film history one and two. It had 150 students. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't know more than like the 10 of them. Right. Um So, yeah, I mean, sometimes there are fewer resources. Like, you know, Boulder had a radio station. Mm -hmm. I never participated in it, though. So it's been really cool to, like, start a radio station and participate in it. And I feel like because we're smaller, we are theoretically more nimble and can Mm -hmm. can get more stuff done here. Um, So I, I like the kind of neighborhood vibe here. Um, and I enjoy having more responsibility than
1: I did at Boulder. And maybe this is controversial, Mm -hmm. but I've, uh, but since, you know, we have a faculty member here, we don't have tenure here.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Right.
1: Can you talk about the difference? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, here, I'll be honest with you. That was like a gut punch to Mm -hmm. give up my tenure. Right. Um, (laughs) At an R1 school. And I am a researcher and a scholar, and I've been trying to maintain my research, um, but it's hard because there's a heavier teaching administrative Mm -hmm. load here. So that's one of the drawbacks. Um, I would love it if they would institute tenure Mm -hmm. at Woodbury because I think the quality of the instructors is good enough to do that, but that's controversial. Um, And not everyone would have to do it. I think you could either opt in if you wanted to, or if not, you could keep the really high teaching load and that would be fine too. Mm -hmm. It's just, you just have to have like markers of productivity, whether you call it research, whether you call it teaching, whether you call it administration, those are the Mm -hmm. three areas of academic work. Um, It's just sort of divided differently here. Um, So I've had to sort of shift my workload a little bit, but on balance, it's been really good you know, for me on a personal level because I can live with my family. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've so far managed to keep up Sort of my productivity, although I, I think it's fallen off a little bit. I've been trying to get this new book in gear for
0: a couple years now, and I'm a little behind on that. So, which I yeah, which I definitely want to talk about yeah. in a minute. Your yeah. the, the uh, books that you've published, but before we go there, I'd like to um, tell us about the communications department. And mm-hmm. if I were a student and I was coming to you, let's just say at Discover Woodbury and. Mm-hmm. I wanted to discuss what the program entailed and Mm -hmm. and what careers I might pursue after graduation. Um, What what would you tell that student?
2: Yeah. So I tell them communication is a big field. (laughs) And so we have tried to sort of divide it into two camps. So the one camp is media studies, where we study film, TV, Internet, new media. What are the stories you tell there? What are the forms, genres, histories, stuff like that? And that's good if you want to go into the entertainment business, maybe into production or um, development or some kind of admin job, Um, you know, and there's all the studios here. So that's a good pipeline for that. The other wing of communication that we offer here we call strategic communication, and that tends to be more the kind of businessy side of things like marketing, um, brand development, um, social media marketing. A lot of our students want to go into social media marketing. Um, publicity you know stuff like that Mm -hmm. so um, that side of our our uh, curriculum is I'd say less robust because the faculty we have here we have three full-time faculty myself Professor Kristen Fuse and Professor Nicole Keating and the three of us are a little more on the media studies side um, but we have courses in like public probations and stuff like that periodically as well Mm -hmm. so um, we try to to fit both sides of that And we have a little bit of nascent uh, journalism offerings, like with our course 7500, where the Mm -hmm. students make a magazine called 7500, which is really cool. And now we have our new course on intro to broadcast media, Mm -hmm. which interfaces with this radio station. So in small ways, we're kind of building out little pieces of communication, but it's really a big field. And there's a lot of different careers you can go into.
0: Is there a lot of crossover with some of our other uh, programs that we have here? Yeah, absolutely. I'd
2: say um, we're in the School of Media, Culture, and Design, and we kind of serve all the programs there. So, for example— uh, we encourage our students to do a minor in any other discipline, like they could do one in graphic design or um, filmmaking if they wanted. Uh, we allow enough electives in our curriculum. They can do that. But also we get students from all over the campus because our courses count as GE electives for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I usually have students from architecture, business, um, psychology, like all over the campus in my classes, which is cool. Excellent. Excellent.
1: Um, that was a really good question. I was actually going to ask that, so now I'm... Uh, now
0: I, <laughs> I stole um, your question.
1: But but even, like you mentioned, um, the media, um, you know, concentration and, and a lot of the students wanting to do social media marketing. Yeah. Um, so is there any interaction between, like, the, the marketing mm-hmm. um, major that we have in the School of Business, mm-hmm. or is that not something
2: not a ton. I I think there could be more. I kind of wish there would be more. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I'll have a student who's doing a minor in business. Um but it's kind of a natural fit to pair the two together. Um so but you know there's not a ton of collaboration there at mm-hmm. the moment, although there certainly could be.
1: So if you have a prospective student, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, we're always curious about this because, and to a large extent, and you'll find out. I always make fun of this. My questions are like twenty minutes, so just you know, <laughs> it's okay. bear with me. Cool. <laughs> uh, but we often speak to prospective students, or at least that's who we try to speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a prospective student now, and and I imagine many of them are thinking, yeah, I want to be an influencer on mm-hmm. Instagram and all of that stuff. How do you take someone like that mm-hmm. and turn them into a professional? Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, maybe a, a challenging question answer off the cuff like this, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sort of curious about who the prospective students are that come into communications Mm -hmm. and then what they're like when they leave.
2: Yeah, it's hard to say because they're all different kinds of people, but I'd say so my background is in the humanities, Mm -hmm. so I am not totally pointed towards entrepreneurial stuff in the way I teach media studies. Um, So what I might say to that student who wants to be an influencer is like, well, what does it mean to be an influencer? And is that really influencing the culture? You know, if Mm -hmm. you have 75,000 followers on Instagram, what does that mean? Let's think about that critically. And then let's look at some histories of older forms of media and think about how – is this really new or not? You know, And as a historian, I like to talk about how a lot of what we see with digital media seems totally new, but it actually has precedence in previous forms of media. Um, so probably where I would take it is in a direction that some students would find fascinating and others might be bored with. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I would try to get them to think critically and historically about their concept of what it means to be an influencer. That said, I would hope that maybe these skills would help them be a better influencer, but you never know. It sort of depends on the person and how that kind of critical thinking mixes in their their whole um, approach to their career.
0: Mm -hmm. Jennifer, uh, can you tell us about um, some of the internships that your students Mm -hmm. do while they're um at Woodbury? Yes. So
2: we have had students do some really cool internships um, at KCRW Radio. We oh, had a great. student do that a few years ago. Uh, this is a student who now has a radio show here. That's Malik Walker, Rahima Radio. Oh, great. Yeah. And he had a really cool internship there mm-hmm. uh, where he got to meet Nas, his hero, one of his heroes. Nice. <laughs> um, we have had students do internships at various studios around here. Um, actually, one of our big success stories, um, in addition to Malik, I'd say, is um, a student. I don't know if I can say students by name, but we have yeah, a student. Sure. Um, Nick Santos, who did an internship at Bad Robot, which is a production company that uh, it's J.J. Abrams' production company. Okay. She ended up getting a job there. So she Thanks. works there full time, which is total score. Wonderful. And um, she's super super smart and you know I think she's a a, one of our great success stories someone who really kind of I saw her blossom while she was here and, and learning about media and history and identity and politics. and that, But she's like a movie nerd, right? And she's a storytelling junkie kind of like I am, right? And so mm-hmm. she found her place, and I think she's going to have a great career. But she got that out of an internship. That's unusual. Usually you get an internship and you're done. Mm-hmm. But I think they really loved her because she's awesome. Right. Um, I had a student last fall who did a really cool internship at um, the NFL Football League, and he oh, wants wow. to go in. Into the sports industry if he can. So I'm hoping that might pave the way for him. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a kind of pipeline to the Burbank Chamber of Commerce for Mm -hmm. a standing internship there. So I'm hoping to set a student up with that right now. I'm not sure what's going to happen with it. So but it's really all over the map, mm-hmm. right? Because I like to say that like communication is kind of like the English degree of your, right? You know, where like students who are interested in a lot of stuff but they don't totally know what they want to mm-hmm. be yet, right. they can come here, right. get some skills in communicating, right? Um, and then hopefully that's applicable to almost anything. It's true. Yeah. Well,
1: that's the thing. This may sound like pedestrian or whatever, but we often talk about communications. You know, the ability to communicate, it's something people sometimes take for granted, but not very many people are good at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it seems like a skill that's really falling away. Yeah. And I don't know if you have any comments or or thoughts about that, but...
2: Yeah, well, I'm also bad at it a lot of the time too. You know, it's like a <laughs> lifetime project is trying to be a good communicator. And there's so many different ways, like right. not just in the workplace, not just interpersonally with your family or whatever, but, you know, with strangers in public and it's it's complicated. But yeah, because we now have this digital explosion of media, there's this sort of veneer of extreme communicability but for all that's been added with speed and access i feel like some things have been taken away in terms of i don't know irl skills in real life skills and mm-hmm. also maybe in terms of depth um, i'm a bit of a twitter junkie mm-hmm. i'm sorry to say but like i can't turn it off and i love it Do but you there's follow us um, I don't know if <laughs> I do. Should. We I will. tweet
1: a lot. We okay. tweet 20, 20, <laughs> 20, 25 times He's a obsessed. day. No way. But He's yeah.
2: obsessed <laughs> with tweeting. <laughs> do you program it, or do yeah, you we, do it yourself?
1: Well, I don't want to We Don't, don't want to give away your yeah.
2: secrets. <laughs> yeah,
1: we, I use TweetDeck. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. otherwise, I'd be... Never be able to do yeah, anything yeah. else, but it, but so, it's actually we can we've got so much good content now yeah. that we're pretty good at being able to do it in like you know pretty short period of time.
2: And I think you have to use TweetDeck if you do it all the time. Yeah. Um, You're and We actually have a bunch of students here too who are really active on Twitter. They use TweetDeck. They they use all the different platforms simultaneously. You know, we have some pretty adept students. Yeah,
1: we yeah. actually have two students who who essentially run our Instagram and we, awesome. For, and we just did, for example, an Ask Us Anything, mm-hmm. um, which requires uh, you know some <laughs> some uh, flexibility and and you know being up in the middle of the night answering questions, which yeah. is something I was doing. But, if you um, want to
0: answer them right away, which you probably should.
1: But, you know, and I don't know, I was yeah. talking to Jamie about this, and yeah. I don't know if, if you if you have any comment about it, but we were talking earlier, because I'm kind of fascinated by this, is, and I guess it's kind of a marketing thing, but, you know, a lot of things, you know, especially with this Ask Us Anything it, so so what it is 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 it goes onto our Instagram story, and then students can just type in questions. Mm-hmm. And they were asking all kinds of questions, which is fantastic, and mm-hmm. it's something we like to do a couple times a semester. Mm-hmm. But they were asking questions that maybe the three of us would say, well, just go to the website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. But they don't do that. Right. And that's right. not what they want to do. They're looking at their Instagram story they see this pop up, they ask a question, they want the answer mm-hmm. right then. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit interesting with mm-hmm. Gen Z and maybe others mm-hmm. where they really look they're, The way they receive the way they communicate, the way they receive information is much different than maybe we did. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think so.
2: Yeah. Yeah there was a thread i was following that i lost in my head there <laughs>
1: from it was all my talking it. no 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 <laughs> cuz
2: i have so much to say about that but i was going to say oh something about the lack of depth on twitter is mm. that you know you just have a How many characters is it? I think it's up
1: to 280 now. Yeah, 280
2: characters. A whole paragraph. (laughs) Yeah. And like, the posts I tend to do are like a link to an article, right? right? And so I, and everybody else does that too. But then you like, you read the headline, you don't read the whole article. I try to read the articles I post, but then I, you can't read it all. Absolutely. There's too much. And so with the glut, of information we have there's a drawback to that which is that you're never going to catch up and you always feel like you don't know enough yeah and so i'm a big believer in my classes and slowing it down and trying to get the depth rather than skimming the surface of the breath
0: right
2: um then it's a challenge to do that
1: well and this is, leads me to something else and this is what happens to me i just go on and on but um we're in our uh, sort of this post-truth mm-hmm. period now or mm-hmm. whatever we call alternate truth, yeah. and, you know, uh, which frankly to me is extraordinarily scary. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, how does that play into the work that you do and working with students and mm-hmm. trying to figure out, like, what is the truth? And, mm-hmm. and you know, right now it seems like we have parallel Truths?
2: Yeah, that's a really big question. That's one of those good, like, humanities questions Mm -hmm. that you could chew on for a while. So, my media history class, which I just taught earlier today, is about this. And, um, you know, I usually start out by saying, I do believe in truth. I don't believe that there is no truth. But often, rather than a big T, one size fits all truth, there's a lot of small Ts, like individual truths for people based on their identity or their personal experience. And like my truth doesn't necessarily invalidate somebody else's truth. So we talk a lot in media history about publics and like finding different publics that you might Mm -hmm. connect with. And we've been talking about the history of the public sphere, uh, you know, the coming out through the invention of the printing press and development of newspapers and how people would sort of cluster around different kinds of arguments or different newspapers that catered to different class spheres, um, and how you find your public, right, and how there was this idea of the commons was established there, the common place where people come together and debate matters of public interest, and how the commons is this big, messy place with competing points of view. And I think maybe... It is a scary time in terms of this so-called post-truth thing, but I think the answer to that, coming from the humanities, is to reassert the idea that there are truths. It's not infinite, you know, nothingness out there. There are specific truths, and there are there are um, sometimes simultaneously contradictory truths, mm-hmm. but there are still ways to, to truth test and fact check things.
1: Yeah, and I think it's actually comforting when you put it in historical perspective, Mm -hmm. because I have a history background and Mm -hmm. um, like to look at things that way, too. And I do think it actually is helpful to Mm -hmm. realize, okay, we we are in in kind of an extraordinary time right now, but Mm -hmm. there is precedent. I guess, to some extent. Yeah, there
2: is like just today I was talking about 19th century journalism and muckraking and right. yellow journalism and all the lies they told then there was this fake story about the discovery of the North po- so-called discovery of the North pole mm. in 1909. And then they were in Hearst newspapers and it was outed as a fraud like a few months later. Yeah. So what we see now with all this false stories on the internet is not totally new, but what students have to learn is like really good skills at seeing what's truth and what. It's lies on the Internet. Um, and there's a lot of lies on the Internet. <laughs> but they, they know that, you know. What is the the
0: site that you can fact check stuff? There's like Snopes.com? The yeah. 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 Snopes is is talk bad. about going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <That> <laughs> but is they so are good. Funny. It's yeah. a good reference. Yes. So let me ask you, Jennifer. We were um, talking to Ruben Ellis mm-hmm. um, a while back and when he was interviewed here, and we were asking about – the professional writing program Mm -hmm. and you know this may be controversial too but i'd Mm -hmm. love to hear your take on this um i was i asked why is isn't that degree under the communications Mm -hmm. um yeah well we try to
2: collaborate with them in the writing program because we have writing assignments in all of our classes and we share students with them some of the courses in their curriculum count for ours and vice versa Um, I think it's just like an administrative thing. The way things are organized at the moment is that we are separate. Um, There's obviously lots of different ways you could organize these fields. I actually love, though, that communication is located in the School of Media, Culture, and Design Mm because, you know, being more of an arty kind of person myself, it's Mm -hmm. cool to be around all the design. Um, schools and, and especially filmmaking, which is really my kind of background. It's near and dear to my heart. And mm-hmm. I feel like our media studies offerings really complement the filmmaking school, which is a making department. Right, right, right? right? And we're sort of like the critical studies backbone, if you will, for a lot of these other MCD programs.
0: This may be a good segue to talk about your latest uh, publication mm-hmm. in Hollywood on Location in Industry History. So you wrote... A chapter in this Mm -hmm, book. mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So I
2: wrote the first chapter, which is about location shooting in the silent era. And my expertise is I'm a silent film historian, is my sort of little niche. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, And specifically an early film historian. So I can talk at length about like the first small categories of the emergence of cinema, which I do in this chapter. Uh, but the book is super cool. I, I haven't read the other articles all the way through yet, but what I have read is really good. So I'm I'm super excited to be a part of this. And the book has chapters on location shooting from the beginning, the chapter I wrote, all the way up to the present.
0: Okay.
1: So, so tell us a little bit about... Because um, now I'm really interested mm-hmm. to know about... Lo- you know, location shooting mm-hmm. in the silent era. Like, mm-hmm. so I imagine logistically it was much more challenging. I mean, yes talk- and
2: no. Yeah, so so this is a thing people don't know until they learn it in a class, usually. that early cinema emerged out of outdoor shooting, not inside studios. And this is because in the early years, you needed bright lights, of course, and they didn't have lighting. Like artificial right. lighting, but isn't that why so, they came
1: out here to California?
2: Not ex- yes and no, yeah. So so really, so film emerges in 1895, and uh, the first purpose-built film studio is the Thomas Edison's right. so called seen. Black Mariah. Seen, yeah. yeah, and that's in West Orange, New Jersey. Um, but that actually had a roof that would open up to the sunlight, and the building could turn around to catch the the, the sun's progress across the sky. Um, during the day so they needed lighting basically so more films were shot outside than inside in the early years and that goes all the way up through the early 1900s the first um, Cooper Hewitt lamps were not available until the like, first decade of the 20th century. They're installed in the Biograph uh, studios in New York around 1903 or so. But still, it was easier and cheaper to shoot outside mm-hmm. at first. And also, film wasn't primarily a storytelling medium at first. It was more like a method of capture. Mm -hmm. So, like, early films, they're short. They tend to be, like, scenic views Mm -hmm. or parades or, you know, weird objects of interest like fairground attractions. So it was,
1: like, showing off the median Mm -hmm. of, like, wow, look at this, moving pictures.
2: Yeah, and some of the earliest displays of cinema were more about the apparatus, the projector, than Mm -hmm. they were about the content on the screen. So, um historians call the early period the cinema of attractions because this is about like fairground attractions showing you something
0: rather than telling a story
1: mm. that's yeah i love that stuff
0: and <laughs> is there anything else you want i know that we, we're actually going to be writing um doing A Q&A with jennifer that we're going to be publishing on our site and We'll definitely share that with you. But it's just basically about her chapter. And we have several questions that we asked her that goes way deeper into this. Yeah. And, so, and, and by the way, that.
1: if you want any of our content, visit woodbury.edu slash news. You can find it all there.
0: So now um, I think I was I reading in your questions that, um, you know, it's easier now to film outside right? Well now it's it's sort of
2: different I mean so what I say in my chapter is that what we think of as location shooting now didn't really come into play until the Hollywood studio system was in place and we say that happens around 1917 it's the beginning of the so called classical Hollywood period where you have studios, vertical integration in the industry and then once you have the studios then the idea of location work makes sense because it's not the studio right mm-hmm. um, so so it's, it's always hard to say, does it cost more or less to shoot on location? In general, now they would say it costs more to go on location because you got to take everyone there. However, it depends on where you're going, what you're shooting, um, you know, how big your unit is when you're taking the crew out on location. But I tend to really like films shot on location. I respond to them because I like documentary style aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, even like films like *The Revenant*, I quite like not so much for the story, but because of the beautiful location shooting uh, done by Emmanuel Lubezki, who's the cinematographer on that. Uh, it's a film by Alejandro
1: González Iñárritu.
2: Um,
1: That's how I felt about *Roma*. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Which was I shot by um, by the filmmaker himself, Alfonso Alfonso Quarón. He usually works with. Um, with the cameraman, Lubezki, but this time he just did it on his own, and he did an amazing job on Roma. I was very impressed by that.
0: Are are there any other books you want to mention that you've published?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I did publish a monograph, like a whole book I wrote myself, uh, in 2013, and it's a history of travelogue films, which is a very narrow subject. (laughs) Uh, It's a kind of um, classic book to get tenure about my tiny field that a few hundred people will read. <laughs> 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 but it got me tenure at Boulder. Um, and it's a book I'm very proud of. It's about you know, a history of travelogue films from 1907 to 1915, films about places around the world, kind of like postcards come alive. Um, so, and these are all location work, right? Mm-hmm. It's a form of location work. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was asked to be in this book about location shooting. Uh, And then I have over a dozen um, chapters in edited books like this Mm -hmm. that I've published over the last 12 years or so. Um, And then I'm working on a second monograph now, but I have to still write the proposal. But it's going to be about uh, the history of nature and technology in American film history from the 20s through the 50s. So, And I'm coming now from an environmental humanities perspective, so I'm really um, energized and horrified by what's happening with environmental collapse around us. And so I'm trying to think about the history of the way film has rendered environments in the past before they were aware of all the degradation that was already happening and thinking about how we can see kind of the footprints of the Anthropocene before people knew what that was.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so I have some work on location shooting and also work on what I'm calling soundstage nature, like films shot on a soundstage, Mm -hmm. but they're set diegetically outside. Um, So I'm thinking about how these artificial and natural worlds can be kind of interestingly paired together to think Mm -hmm. about how nature was conceptualized in film history.
0: Fascinating! Uh, you are one busy woman. Yeah, yeah. no, this just
1: gave us a lot, to, a lot of uh, grist for our mill. Now. Uh-huh. Uh, just a quick question about the mm-hmm. travel log, yeah, um, films because I wasn't aware of that. So mm-hmm. these are almost like marketing movies a little bit
2: yeah like sometimes local chambers of commerce were totally involved like los angeles the the local la chamber of commerce was very invested in Mm -hmm. getting film companies to make boosterist films about la showing the orange groves and and they're all
1: silent right so they were
2: yeah but they always silence were never silent they always had live music right. right um but and yes, they, they were not sync sound.
1: So people would go to a theater to watch these.
2: Yeah, and in the early years, they didn't have feature films, so it would be a program of short films. Mm. So you might have like a comedy, a travelogue, another comedy, a melodrama, maybe a nature film or a science film, and the whole program would be like an hour, hour and a half. And there was no start time. You just kind of wander in, wander out. Huh. Wow. That didn't happen until Psycho around 1960. Mm. Um that's the famous example, anyway. The Hitchcock wouldn't allow people to come in except at set times because he didn't want to give away the the,
1: the right. narrative twist. Yeah. So these films are almost a little bit like content marketing, which is something mm-hmm. that we, that we <laughs> yeah we do. So yeah. that's kind of uh, I like that. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah they're like little geogra- geography ads in some ways. Although they were made by film companies, so they weren't mm. necessarily advertising the place like commercially. They were more like I, I talk about them as kind of fantasy geographies so for peop- in an era when people didn't travel much mm. you know you could go to the movie theater and see like a film about venice italy right. and just you know fantasize about going there because you probably never will
1: was it um now i'm really getting into the weeds but was it difficult to shoot with the equipment
2: no or? at that time it was cheaper Oh, okay. So often what they would do, like if they were shooting a comedy on location, they'd just like shoot a little travel on film the on side. the side because, oh. you know, they have some extra film and they'd like, you know, just shoot some footage of whatever was there.
1: Oh. And they'd come up with the the, the cards, the type. Yeah. The yeah. Usually, yeah.
2: The intertitles were often done later back mm. in post-production at the, the processing
0: hmm. um, studio. Fascinating. Mm. Very fascinating. Oh, well, I, that's all I have. Do you? I mean, <laughs> we're gonna edit this part out. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add to the interview?
2: Um, no, I mean, this has been super fun. I really enjoyed talking with you guys, and I'm super glad that you're doing this show. It's really great to kind of showcase all of Woodbury's talents. I think absolutely, um, there's a lot going on here, and I'm glad you're you're. Uncovering it. Time to uncover it. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely. And if you
0: have any students you want to send our way, please, by Mm -hmm. all means, do. I mean, I love interviewing students. Okay. That would be a lot of fun. I will see what I can think of. I'm sure I might have some.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Take care. Thank
2: you.